Every time we come up with something to make our lives easier, we don't acknowledge that we're squishing other things down further in the stack and not necessarily understanding them, which is what we have to do to understand modern systems. So I don't know that we need to be emotionally invested in modern systems, but I think we do need to acknowledge that the complexity has its own requirements. Hi, I'm Liz Fong Jones. And I'm Charity Meters. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OllieCast for short, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OllieCast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. Before anybody starts to do a feature flag, I need them to understand what their software does in the first place. Oh, that's a tall order. I know, but I feel like we would build better software if we knew how it was going to end up. Just a crazy thought I had. (laughs) So it's kind of similar, I guess, to this idea from chaos engineering that if you don't understand what the question is that you're asking, if you don't understand your hypothesis, then you can't possibly run an experiment. Yeah, I think it has been easy for developers to follow orders. And just following orders is always the worst plan. I agree. That is the ideal. But how many of your users actually meet that bar before they get started? I don't know that the individual developers do, but we find that when people are incorporating feature flags, they've gotten far enough down the path that they're like, wow, I wish that some part of this didn't work all the time or did work part of the time. And once they've gotten that far, then they can have a conversation about, you don't need to know why this is wrapped in a feature flag. You just need to know that somebody cares. And it sounded like you were saying that people come to you because they've run into a wall. Like they know that they want to deploy their code, but not to everyone at once. They want to have more control over it or they've been burned. Like they've accidentally blasted it to everyone. And, and and I can see this, like this is a pain that pretty much everyone who's ever deployed software has had at one point, right? Yeah. I think that everybody has pushed to production when they shouldn't. What? I do. I, I have a friend who works at Squarespace who ha- said that she had her heart rate go up like, you know, twice as fast because someone said to her in Slack, oops, I, did I run that against production by mistake? <laughs> the answer was no, as it turned out. But <laughs> So I'm teaching my kids to drive right now. And I'm thinking a lot about how this is one of those analogies that's just going to haunt my conference talks forever. The way you teach people things is not to give them this like academic setting. Like they took driver's ed on Zoom. You create a craving in them. Yeah, like to teach a man to build a ship, you you must instill a yearning for the sea. But also it doesn't matter how much Zoom driver's ed you had, you have to get behind the wheel. Mm -hmm. You don't have to get behind the wheel on the freeway. You can get behind the wheel at like midnight in a dark suburb in a parking lot. Mm -hmm. Controlled circumstances. Right. And then as you gain confidence, you're going to move to bigger environments. You're going to move to more complexity. It's going to give you more capacity to do things. Like you can't go buy milk if all you can do is drive in a parking lot. Yeah. You can buy milk if you can drive like back roads, but you can't really go interstate if you can't do freeway speeds. So you're just going to keep ramping up. Well, I grew up in Idaho where like 
there were like 1300 people for the, yeah. But, but I take your point in civilization. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. No, I like this. And I feel like this is kind of, you know, we, we talk a lot about the battle days when ops was like, stay out of production. This is my area, you know, and devs are like, you know, but we want to play, you know, and like people ask me surprisingly often, what do you mean by guardrails? What does it mean to like build guardrails for your developers so that they're, you know, I, and I think of production kind of like a playground, right? And it's a playground. You don't want your kid to like die going down the slide. Right. We've taken all the metal stuff out. Like mostly you're not going to rip anything open. Yeah. They can get dinged up, but like the swing set is not literally like 30 feet off the ground. Like you don't want it to be that easy for people to die. There was risk. Right. But like making it sized appropriately, like feature flags is the first thing that I always jump to when it, because it, it decreases the scope. It gives you control over the scope. Who do you want to see this? When? And you can just flip it without even having to go through the whole deploy process. Right. And I think that's a really interesting thing. Like you've been talking a ton about how important it is to be able to deploy in living memory of when you wrote the thing and then see the results. And that feedback loop is something that we've been, I don't want to say idolatry in CICD, but kind of... It's one of those, like, uh, the, the what do they call those, cornerstone species or whatever, like the, the foundation of an ecosystem. Like, if you can get that right, so many things are set up to go right by default without you having to think or try really hard. And if you get that wrong, so many things are set up to go very poorly. Right. So to circle things back around to the question that we originally asked, it sounds like feature flags and the ability to deploy small changes safely, that actually is the you must be this tall to ride for many other things. Yes. So there's really not not that much of a you must be tall, this tall to ride for feature flags, but it in turn enables you to do so many more things. By the way, this seems like a good time for you to introduce yourself. My name is Heidi Waterhouse. I am the Principal Developer Advocate at LaunchDarkly. I've been there three years. I just hit my anniversary. And I have spent that entire time going around the world telling people that they could be less scared if they just use this tool. And I feel like we're finally getting somewhere where we, we can combine that with chaos. We can combine that with observability and say, what if development and deployment were not the scariest thing you did with your day. Yeah. And, and it's like, like there's this craving on the parts of many people to hear that all they need to do is buy one tool, buy a tool, do a thing, you know, and, and a lot of vendors play into this too. Cause they'll be like, well, my tool is the bestie tool. You know, you buy my tool, always bullshit. Right. But there's this whole ecosystem and it's kind of like once you dip your toe into one corner of the pool, you start to see why you need other pieces, other parts of it, right? Like they enhance each other. They play together nicely. They amplify each other and they give you superpowers. And I think the interesting thing is like, we just did a survey and LaunchDarkly has about 200 employees and about 240 applications in our Okta, which made me want to lie on the floor and die. Honestly, I'm like, I can't, I can't handle this, but not everybody sees every application. Like I don't need Salesforce. I don't need Zendesk. Those are not my problem. So those can be partitioned off from me. But I think all of these things that we are doing tools for are not new. Like feature flags are not new. It's just that people had been... It just knows that they've been done over and over and people have done these shitty reimplantations of them, right? But 
it turns out that we have finally hit a cost tipping point for tools that makes it affordable to not roll your own. That you can buy this and it's better to spend your time on other stuff. Well, some of the stuff that you guys have done has been, like, you've done some really interesting novel stuff on the front end. And correct me if I'm wrong, I could be completely out of date here, but my understanding of your business model was you're basically selling to, like, marketing teams and, like, not developers as much as, like, you know, the less technical people to be able to flip things on and off. You know, so it depends. Much like mm-hmm. the, the myth about the elephant and, you know, which part of it you grab, it depends who you ask. If you ask, our front-end sales team, what is exciting? They're like, what if product managers could do this without having to bug dev to turn something on for them? Mm-hmm. If you ask the dev team, what they say is, what if product managers could do this without bugging us? And what if I had the power to do my own testing? Mm-hmm. What if I could see my stuff in production without going through this entire approval process? If you ask me, I think that like the long-term payout now that we've added workflows is workflow management is almost middleware. Say more about that. So, and, and this is like heterodox, even in the company, just to be clear, but I think what we are actually providing is an ability for people to execute business logic without knowing code. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say codeless. There's a lot of code. Sure. But the people writing the code don't always have their finger on the pulse of what the user needs. And like writing code is hard. It takes a lot of cognitive and emotional energy. And like just as a principle I live my life by is try to do the laziest thing that you can, right? It's democratizing. It, it makes it so that it's, it's, you know, if it's not like this, you have to be the priest in our cult in order to like flip these flags, right? It means that it's more participatory. It means that, you know, I've often said that like, you know, tools build silos. The border of your tool is where the silo edge sits, right? If you don't share the same view of reality, if you don't share the same interface, if you don't share the same tool set, then you're living in different worlds. And and what I love about, I think that software engineers, I think that we're getting a little less snobby about this stuff. When is it, there, there are no like new VIMs that are being written, right? Like we're, we're like, actually, we are human beings. We are prone to human biases as just like all the other human creatures around us, right? And it turns out when you make tools that work well for non-engineers, they're really great for engineers too. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah, it's a super interesting thing, right? Like we see our sales engineers and our account executives turning on and off flags for customers, right? And it's and it's amazing to see them just, you know, reach in and do it. And it's just like, you know what? Okay, they don't have to know how to write a single line of code to do this. This is super exciting. So many people have been, you know, raised with this idea of coding is like, it is literally magic. Like if you're not a quote unquote coder, you, you're not in the club. You don't understand. It must be so far outside your comprehension. There's always this weird paradigm with like, you know, not just the code, but then the config for the code, right? Like, you know, there used to be software engineers who are deathly afraid of touching YAML files, right? And for good reason. I know so many people who don't write a single line of code, like our marketing person, Deirdre, and yet can talk about it so much more intelligently and intelligibly. Like she understands what she's saying. She can come up with great new insights. She doesn't need to be able to write code to understand technology. And there are plenty of people out there who do write code who can't do that. Like I feel like these skill sets are not 
they're not overlapping the way we treat them at all. Understanding and doing are not the same thing. Yeah. And like, I'm a non-coding DevRel, which is sort of a weird place to be. I've always been intrigued by that. Can we detour a little and talk about your journey? Sure. I spent 20 years doing technical writing for a succession of companies. About 18 months in, I had learned everything I was interested in and about the company, fixed their documentation, and I would ride off into the sunset. I eventually made a business doing that, where I'm just like, okay, startups, you have fucked up, and you have not done documentation, and now you're like two years down the line, and it needs to happen, and you don't know where to start. So I'm going to come in, fix it all for you, and leave it so that you can hire somebody less expensive to maintain it. That means that I knew the product and the theory. Yeah, you can't fake it. And you can't fake it. So like, I worked on Microsoft BitLocker. It was like one of the projects that was really revolutionary for how I thought about these things. And I knew everything from, I sat in meetings where we had an argument about the switch that had to flip. Like it was actually a physical hardware flag at boot time to enable the TPM chip to, you know, basically report that it was feeling okay. You didn't understand a word of what you were talking about. I can tell. Yeah, exactly. All the way up to I'm watching end user tests of Windows 2008 and seeing how tragically that whole security check was going to fail. Why didn't you decide? Because it's the easy answer is to go, well, this is the path that is people look up to. It has the prestige and the money. Like, what? why didn't you? I find it boring. I find the problems in socio-human technical systems much more interesting than I find figuring out where the hell I put that semicolon. And could I learn it? Probably. Uh, will I learn it someday? Maybe. I was looking at, like, maybe I'll do some glitch apps because I have some things I want to express. Tech for me has always been about solving a problem. Like, I cannot motivate myself to do something unless it... I believe it is the most important problem, the the number one, the thing that is blocking us, right? I can motivate myself to do literally anything. If it's that, if it's anything else, I can't do it. Yeah, I, I struggle with that because I'm like, okay, but I could solve this problem for the long term or the thing you're asking me about is a short term fix and I don't want to do it because it's dumb. Yeah, I struggle with it because I feel like I would love to be someone who does computers for fun. I would love to have hobby apps. I would love to be someone who can just sit there and learn a language and fuck around. And I've tried, and I just don't know how to get my brain to fire on those cylinders. Mm -hmm. It feels to me like it's a purer form of motivation than, well, rage, honestly. I run on rage, let's be honest. <laughs> I feel like I burn it as a fairly clean fuel, but it's still rage. <laughs> it, feels like, it feels like, you know, being motivated by the joy of the technology, I would, I would enjoy that feeling if I could feel it. Mm, it's so interesting because one of the conferences that I'm a huge fan of, I'm not sure, have you been to this conference before, Heidi? It's called Bang Bang Con. It's about the joy and surprise of computing. I, I've attended it and I find it charming. I've never gotten a talk in, but someday. You said it was the joy of programming, Liz? The surprise and joy of programming. Ooh, I like that. All of my conference talks also run on Rage. Like every single one, the secret beginning of the talk is, I'm really pissed off about. This is why we're friends. <laughs> the talk that I'm, I'm currently gestating is about Lillian Gelbraith, who was an early motion studies expert. Like she's the reason we understand the kitchen triangle. And 
I want to talk about developer ergonomics. Oh, oh, the mom from Cheaper by the Dozen. The mom from Cheaper by the oh, Dozen. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Loved those books. I read the biography of her by one of her kids, too. Yep. But, like, let's talk about developer ergonomics from a really feminist point of view to say work is not value in itself. Work is value because it accomplishes something. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no merit in walking across your kitchen 20 times or in using an IEDE that doesn't work for you. There's so many people who don't get that. So, so many. You know, okay, devil's advocate, though. I feel like, is what we do, is it labor or is it creative output? You know, is it labor that we do because, it, you know, you get where there's a spectrum there. Yeah. You know, and, and a lot of what makes us love our jobs and, and everything is, yes, it's labor, but it's also there's this creative aspect to it that is you can't do as good of a job if you don't love it. And, and I feel like there's a contradiction there where I have just learned to love the hate. Hmm. I've often thought like the systems are getting so complex, so complicated, so hard, so intricate that you can't really just show up and clock in and clock out and do something by rote. I feel like you have to be pretty emotionally invested in it to keep up and to like master modern systems, which was not really true of the lamp stack. There was a lot you could just like, you know, run this, run that, you know, automate a little bit. And I feel like it is becoming more of an art form. So a couple of years ago, I watched a talk by DHH called Read Me. And this talk blew my doors off um, because he talked about conceptual compression. He also talked about Piketty and being divorced from the product of your labor and how it causes ethical decline. It was great. Um, nice. But he talked about conceptual compression that every time we come up with something to make our lives easier, we don't acknowledge that we're squishing other things down further in the stack and not necessarily understanding them which is what we have to do to understand modern systems. So I don't know that we need to like be emotionally invested in modern systems, but I think we do need to acknowledge that the complexity has its own requirements and it's either a really solid foundation or the willingness to like burrow through it. I have this interesting point of view partially because, you know, I live in Minnesota and unlike when I come to San Francisco, People go to their day jobs as programmers for like Target and Medtronic, mm-hmm. and then they go home and talk about other things. Exactly. Like San Francisco, like the Bay Area is still where most innovation is happening. Like there's this hotbed of people who are really passionate about what they're doing, and, and people come here when they crave that, and they seem to leave when they're done with it. Maybe. I don't know. Like, I'm it's, not sure that that's true. I think it's where the funding is. Where it's not universally true, but it is largely true. And it is somewhat self-reinforcing. I, I think there's good PR. I, I think there's probably... I, so I've spent the last three years traveling the world, giving talks over and over and over and over. And I used to think it was a myth. And I no longer do. Yeah. I also have this problem where I'm like, it's really easy to be self-reinforcing in the DevOpsy, DevTools, startup landia. There are far more developers working for Target than like any of our 10, you know, favorite companies. So let's talk about the Dora metrics, you know, like 2018, 2019. And I'm so depressed that like there is going to be no more Dora reports. It's just a, killed by Google. Oh my God. Gosh, darn it. But like you notice that like 2018 to 2019, like the bottom 50% are like losing ground. Yep. And the top 20% are like starting to reach like escape velocity. And I 
don't have like their caliber of data yet, but it seems to be that the tool set, the self-reinforcing tool set, if you know you, you get started with feature flags and you want observability and you might, you know, if you're standing still in computers, you're losing ground. Absolutely. Where are you? Hmm? There are some systems that aren't growing, right? That just need kind of care and feeding. That they're absolutely speaking in generalities that are not 100% true. But I think by and large, every system I've ever worked on, you're losing ground if you're not trying to stay ahead. Yes, I can certainly see that. And I certainly see like the DevOps transformation of large, old companies is fascinating to watch. And I just finished reading Project to Product, which was great. And it was like, why do these things keep failing? Why can't you get a DevOps transformation to work in a you know billion-dollar enterprise? Yeah, because it has nothing to do with being a better engineer or a worse engineer. Like It has nothing to do with that whatsoever. What do you think it has to do with? Value stream mapping. And now I sound like one of the like analyst wankers. But, Sorry, what was that? Uh, value stream mapping. Value stream mapping? I've never heard of this. What are you doing that makes value for the customer? What are people paying you to do? And how do you trace that back through all the layers of your company? And the gentleman who kind of introduced us to the software world, his name is Simon Wardley. Is this Swardley? Yes. Yeah. And he kind of introduces this idea of right, like trying to figure out what is generic heavy lifting, right? And what is your unique value, right? And trying to disentangle, right? Like, you know, which pieces in that stack, in that chain, are where, right? And it's not necessarily true the higher up or the lower down it is, the more you know heavy lifting or, or unique value it is. It really, really depends. So that's kind of the really cool thing that I love about value stream mapping too, is that like it lets you kind of crystallize and visualize all of this stuff. Hmm. Interesting. It's super interesting. And it's a, a new way to think about it because it says not what are we making, but like what value do other people derive from what we're making? And Charity, you may have actually seen this when we put together the observability maturity model, right? Like we used a value map for that rather than rather than. I, I remember what you did, and I also remember not fully getting it. Like it was not clear to me that the process was what led to the result. I guess, mm-hmm. but I, I need to like understand this much more. That was the first time I'd encountered it, and it clearly didn't really click with me. I think like you have to run into it a few times, and Charity, your history has absolutely proven your point about if you're not running, you're falling behind. I think that a lot of the DORA report indicates that if you are not transforming, you're going to get eaten by people who are. That's not exactly the same thing. You could be delivering good value without transforming. Yeah, absolutely. And you're fine until you get disrupted. Yeah. Like, for example, like the New Jersey unemployment system was working fine until there was a catastrophic load on it. And then everything broke because nobody predicted, tested that. Mm. So I think maybe that refutes my earlier hypothesis that there are some systems that don't need to kind of advance in that, you know. Well, they don't until they do. Yeah, they don't until they do. Okay, yep, I'll concede. I was wrong earlier. You've changed your mind. But yeah, it's it's super interesting to me, though. Like, how long can you go? I mean, the New York Times is still running on COBOL. And that'll work until it doesn't, right? Their subscription stuff is all. I was I was at the New York Times like a year or two ago, and and they were like, you know, everything that makes us money is still on the oldest parts of the system from, from the seventies. This I may be misquoting them, but it was just like, yeah, stuff that was like built in the seventies still working. They've got specialized parts 
<laughs> couple people who know how to make it work, but it's so hard. And the other one that we know for sure is true is uh, Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster still runs on a VAX. Yep. Mm. And we get requests all the time for a COBOL SDK. Like, if you know any brilliant COBOL developers, send them our way because we need a COBOL SDK because we want to sell to insurance companies. They're very risk averse. Of course. Mm. But I think that it's really interesting. Was it Corey Quinn who said legacy software, or as I like to call it, revenue generating software? (laughs) Sounds like a Corey. I keep thinking about that. Like, legacy software is what makes us money. And we disrespect that. I don't think it's that we disrespect that. It's that I hope that the lesson that we've learned is we can't allow things to become that legacy. We have to continually upgrade them. There comes a point where it is it is approaching impossibility. And like the, the bigger the gap gets and the more people who knew how to run it die or leave, you know, that the harder it becomes and, and you're just, you're just asymptotically approaching impossible. And I hope that the lesson that we have learned is not, you know, don't have valuable things. It's if it's valuable, that means you have to change it often, constantly keep it warm. Yeah, like Charity, I love the saying that you have that, like, you know, shipping is our lifeblood. That's the intercom. Intercom, right? Like, yeah. and, and I think a lot about, you know, how like sharks, right? Like sharks, if they stop swimming, they stop getting oxygen, they die, right? Like you, you got to keep moving. It's, it's like what you were saying, Heidi, the, the last thing we were doing together where you're like, if you want to move safely with purpose, move fast. The slower you go, the less safe you will be, which is counterintuitive to us because we come, you know, pre-built with all of these like notions about physics but it is absolutely true. Right. We just need to, to elevate our physics understanding to like ice skating. Like good luck standing still and not falling over. Mm. Like standing still is the hardest thing. It really is. So to touch briefly on another subject, how do we actually convince people to change their code? How do we actually convince people to not just, you know, say be spectators in the sport of observability or feature flagging, but instead to actually embrace modifying their code to empower themselves? I think the first thing that I always do is ask people what they're scared of. Mm. We are mammals and we spend a lot of time being scared. Fear-driven development. Yes. And so when I say, hey, let's do this radical thing where you wrap all of your features in this code and you can anybody can turn it off at any time. And they're like, yikes! I'm like, okay, so lean into that yikes and tell me what you're scared of. And here's some suggestions on how we're going to make that actually feel safer than what you have now. So when we say, okay, we're going to instrument everything and return enormous amounts of data, people are like, I don't even know how I'd process that. Like that is so much more data than I have right now. I will be overwhelmed by it and not be able to find the signal and the noise. So then you can show them, okay, here is a change that you've made. Here is the effect that it had. Here's how you can see it. Hmm. So I guess that's kind of exposing to people that the things that they're most afraid of are already happening in production, that there are safer ways to do things, right? Everybody thinks that just because their alarms aren't going off, it means that like nothing's breaking. Ask anyone from ops. There are so many things broken in your production system at all times that you just don't know about yet. Silence should make you afraid. Yes, it's like parenting. Like, why has it gone so quiet? Mm. Everybody leans so hard on the fear response. Like, everybody who's selling software in our space, at least, is like, you know, 
you're going down, <laughs> all this downtime stuff. And like, honestly, I feel like I get that that closes deals, but A, I feel like the adrenaline receptors in our brains are just kind of overactivated all the time these days. And the real reason why people should want this software is a very different feeling. It's the feeling of glee and joy and triumph and conquering and and success and efficiency like the neurons of fire in your brain when you're you're solving a puzzle or you're doing a video game and you find the thing that you weren't expecting to you know you solve the quest like that's what i associate with this stuff Mm -hmm. but it's harder to market that sadly the reason we're doing it is money right it is really hard to explain to your CFO. It does sound more optional when you put it that way. Yeah. But it'll make my life more like a video game. Yes. It will make your developers happier is not something we've actually, we, we've done like token, would you like some sparkling water? But we haven't done like, would you like a four day work week? Mm. And one of these costs real money and one of them doesn't. You know, it's so unfortunate that engineering managers aren't given like one budget for their people and their tools because I am still amazed that we're running Honeycomb with as few people as we are. And we're only able to do that because we dog food so heavily, because we can move, because we can see what we're doing, because we rarely make missteps, because we rarely have shit that we have to back out and redo. And it makes me so sad that most people have never had this experience. And they think we're just like blowing vendor smoke up their ass. All right, now we're just like into the, but what if users would just do what we told them to all the time? Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) Right, but it's so frustrating that we have to have people repeatedly run into the same walls that we've run into the, for the past 10 or 20 years, and then they have to get those bumps in their heads before they're like, okay, wait, I, I, I'm willing to try another way, right? It is so satisfying, though, hearing our users come out and say things like, oh my god, I just adopted Honeycomb and SLOs and deleted 90% of my paging alerts, and we get woken up less, and our users are happier. Like, It's really satisfying being able to amplify some of those voices now. Absolutely. And I think that that's important for people who get woken up to hear. Yes, there is hope. Yeah, and I think that they will eventually become the people who are making the build versus buy decisions. I think that, you know, we're working through a generation in like a lot of social issues. We're working through a bunch of people who are sort of stuck on, it sucked for me, it should suck for you too. Mm. Instead of, it sucked for me, how can I make it better for you? Gosh, I hope you're right. It's been so nice having you here, Heidi. Thank you. <laughs> you're just a ray of sunshine. Liz, anything else you wanted to cover? No, this was a fantastic conversation. I enjoyed it very much. All right, I got a couple things. Yeah. We just announced a Honeycomb integration with LaunchDarkly. Oh, right. Like, and we're super excited. And we'd like to encourage people to visit the LaunchDarkly site and see how you can use Honeycomb to see what you're doing with feature flags and get that super instant feedback dopamine hit. They complement each other beautifully because, you know, what's one of Honeycomb's things? High cardinality. What is a high cardinality dimension? Well, it might be the monotonically infinitely increasing build ID. (laughs) Being able to break down by build ID, being able to break down by feature flag and just go, oh, if I flip this flag on, what about all the variables? What happens to them? It's really kind of miraculous. Yeah, running those multivariate experiments can be so costly and annoying and frustrating, right? But having BubbleUp expose which feature flag values are most associated with a slowdown or a speed up, right? Like that's magic. It is magic. And it makes it safer for everybody. So like if you see something happen in Honeycomb and you can turn it off right away, then you know you're like empowered. 
And also, right, like markers, right? Like the fact we've supported markers for deployments for ages and ages and ages, right? But knowing when the feature flag flipped and having that indicated visually on your timeline, magical. So fine-grained. People are so used to quote-unquote debugging, but it's like they're trying to build this intricate castle in their head about what's happening. When you can like stop doing all that work in your head and just look at it in the tool, oh my God, it's such a cognitive relief. Yeah. So that's the thing that I'm really excited about right now. I'm like, yay, we're getting a whole bunch of integrations out and they're going to make all of these tools so much more powerful. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how the workflow thing helps people move their value along through their silos, like basically greasing the pipe with feature flags. Yeah, for sure. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on, Heidi. Thanks, Heidi. Thank you. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed, and I hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.